Uh, Father God, we just thank you uh, for ruling and reigning. Lord, we thank you for uh, giving us new hearts and new minds and giving us life through your Son. Um, it's an incredible thing the more we think about it, that everything is right with us because we are right with you. Um, a lot of things will happen. There will a lot of be a give and take and, and gain and loss on this temporal world, but Father, none of it None of it affects the fact that we are yours forevermore. So, Father, just help us as we begin to study about how we can love our neighbors, uh, that we would honor you in all that we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okie dokie. So we are on the series of neighboring, and this is week two. So we'll do a quick review over week one. So our week one, Matthew was teaching about what is a neighbor? We looked at different verses in scripture. I sound kind of echoey. <laughs> uh, we were talking about what is a neighbor according to scripture. So I'm just gonna maybe throw a pop quiz out there. Um, when we were reading where Jesus was speaking to the, the lawyer of the law, uh, what was the correction that Jesus gave the man about who his neighbor was? Well, first of all, what was his problem in his understanding of a neighbor? And how did Jesus correct his understanding of a neighbor? If you guys were here last week, which I think most of you were. So I'll say it again. So last week, we read in scripture Jesus' interaction with a, a, a lawyer. And he asked Jesus, uh, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love your Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is similar, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then there was a little bit of dialogue there. So what was the lawyer's uh, misunderstanding of what a neighbor was? Yes, Michael. Yeah, so Michael said that the distortion of the lawyer was that he wanted the neighbor to look a very particular way. In this case, it was to be another Jew, right? And so we looked at scriptures that Matthew talked about where we can understand where that distortion would come out. Now, Jesus corrects his distortion by giving the story of the gentleman who was beaten and left on the side of the road, and none of his Jewish brethren would help him, but a Samaritan who we said, culturally speaking, the Jews and the Samaritan were not best of friends, he came and he basically gave the clothes on his back to help this gentleman. And so we learn that the Lord calls us to love all people, our neighbor is our image bearers, in God, all people bear the image of God, and so we were, were called to love everybody. Primarily, I would say this is rooted in the fact that God first loved us. That's where we learn love, is God loving us. Now, Matthew kind of ended with this idea of, well, but how do we love our neighbor? And we kind of talked a little bit about the tension that we often feel, which is, well, the most loving thing to do is, and I, well, I'm not going to say the answer because I want us to talk about it, but do we do this loving thing or do we do these things? Do we do both of them? Is it either or? And, and we'll talk about that more in detail right now. So I want you to spend a little bit of time to answer the question, as a Christian, and if you have neighbors and they're not Christians, what do you believe the greatest act of love you could do for your neighbor? Okay. I don't want you to answer yet. I just want you to think about it, maybe even write it down. I want to kind of capture your thoughts about what you think it is, and then as we go through it, maybe you'll change your 
um, decision. But the question again is, what is the most loving thing you can do for your neighbor as a Christian? I'll give you like a minute to think about that. And I want you to put why as well. Not just what, but why. All right, so let's see. So I asked the question, um, what is the greatest act of love you can share with your neighbor? Does anyone like to share what they believe the answer to that is? What do you got, Jillian? Gospel, what do you mean? Okay, would anyone have a different one? No? Yeah. Uh, telling them the truth to always encourage them, uplift them, and even in rebuking them. Okay. The truth. Um, there can be times you can be friends with someone and familiar with the individual, but you won't tell them the truth about themselves. Sure, sure. And that's ultimately tied together, right? Yeah. So, good. So I think we would all agree that if we had to pick, like, a number one, the answer would be to share them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that? Because ultimately, the biggest problem that every man, woman, and child face is not how much money's in the bank, it's not if their house is big or small enough, it's not their health, or their education, or their legacy, it's because they are enemies of the living God. Yes, sir? Well, I think we'll get to where I think you're gonna take it. Yeah, you're, you're beating me. Okay. <laughs> you're, that's why I said, I know where you're going. It's where I want to go, too. You're just taking a shortcut. <laughs> Let me, we'll get there. So, like I was saying, the greatest problem every human being has is that they are enemies of the living God. They are enemies of a living God, not because they sinned in a particular way. That's just the fruit. The root of that problem is because they're under the first Adam. Because Adam sinned, he dies, we all die with him. You understand? Sin is not, you don't become a sinner after you sin. Sinning is what sinners do. It is in your innate nature as a fallen human being. So then, if that's the biggest problem, then the biggest solution is if God makes a way to escape condemnation, and he does through Jesus, then that is the greatest message they need to hear. Okay? Now, the issue that we tend to have, notice that I asked the question this way, what is the greatest act of love? I put it that way because I think oftentimes we get in a weird thinking and we start to treat that as the only way to love our neighbor. Let me give you an example of where you will kind of catch yourself not doing this. So I'm going to ask a question. I won't give you a minute. You don't need a minute to ask this question. But um, who is a husband called to love most? His wife or his children? So does that mean he doesn't love his children? No, we laugh at that, right? But we often, when it comes to dealing with lost people, we treat them that way. So we'll, oh, if I get to share the gospel, I'm there all day. But the other stuff, that's, 
that's not important enough, right? Uh, don't worry, I'm going to help them with the most important, the spiritual stuff. But if they need a physical need, I don't, that doesn't need to be me. They can be anybody. Does that make sense? So we, we can have that distortion in one area. In another area, we're very clear. No, you got to love your, your, your wife and your kids. Well, let, let me ask this question, or let's, let's bring it to an, a part of Scripture. It says here um, in Luke 14, uh, 25 through 26, it says the following. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he, referring to Jesus, turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So we just said just a little bit ago, well, you're called to love your wife and your kids. But then at first glance, it seems like Jesus is saying, you got to hate everybody. But that's not what it means, is it? I said, one of the issues... And then, well, let me, actually, let me just keep reading. So I just, I just put some scriptures about love, right? So just to help us kind of see, script, oh, biblically speaking, what love looks like. So let's keep going. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 Corinthians 16.14 says, let all that you do be done in love. Um, John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So one thing I kind of want to address kind of quickly here, well, not quickly, but before we go into neighboring specifically, is that I think our issue often is, is that we read Scripture in too shallow of a manner, okay? And so, what, so one way I think that manifests is that we'll read a verse, like we read those verses, and you'll read it in context of that verse, but you'll usually stop there, and that's the danger, right? That's how we get to have some weird thinking, like, oh, loving my neighbor is sharing the gospel, but everything else, nah, because I wasn't called to that, because the Bible says the gospel is the most important but you see, that's reading a verse within the most narrow of context, right? So you not only do you need to read the verse within the paragraph it's in, you've got to read it within the chapter that it's in, within the book that it's in, considering the author who wrote that and if he wrote other books as well, and then in the Bible as a whole, right? I think, um, I think being a Christian, or let me say reading the Bible, is very simple. Now, some of you might be like, wait, what? The reason you will flinch to me saying that is because you've, you've defined simple wrong your whole life. Simple is not easy. They're not the same thing. They often connect, but they don't always connect. So let's define these terms, right? So to be simple means it's straightforward. It's direct. You can see the path. It's not like overly complex. There's not like some ways to like elude. I don't know. How, how can I understand this? It's very straightforward, okay? That's not the same as easy. And so what I just want to say is, like, I'm going to give you some tips here to, like, read Scripture. Because it is, it should be a very simple process anytime you read the Bible, how you examine it and move forward. If you follow particular principles, you'll almost never be in danger of believing some heresy or believing some really stinking thinking, okay? And so here, here the principles, and these are not, absolute, like these are the only ones. I just have a couple here that I wanted to share with you. 
So once again, these are just principles that if you follow these steps, you always think about this when you read, you will be in very low danger of using Scripture poorly, okay? So one, like I said, read within context, within the paragraph, within the chapter, within the book, within the author, within the Bible as a whole. The second thing is to always remember the Bible will never contradict itself. At times, does it sometimes look like it at first glance? Yes, but only on the surface. That's called a paradox, something that appears to be a contradiction at first glance, but if on further, it is not. Why is there no contradiction? How can I make such a great claim? Because the author of the word is God, and he does not contradict himself, okay? Next, when reading scripture or learning about a principle, always, always seek to find the clearer scriptures to start your understanding of something. Look, there, the, the truth is there are things in the Bible that are very clear, and some things not so clear, that we would wish was more clear. Start with the clear to help you work to the unclear, okay? Next thing, ultimately, I think this is the most important principle. You need to ultimately remember this, that the way your scripture reading is going to be solid or is going to continue to grow solid is that you remember the main purpose of scripture. It's not instruction. What's that? What's the, what's the acrostic? The Bible one? Basic instructions before leaving earth. Look, that's good. There's truth to that to a degree, but that is not its main point. Its main point is to reveal the Lord, okay? The Bible is only as good as you use it to see who God is. So when you read and you continue to see God's character described and explained, you, if, I, I tell you, it happens every time when someone comes up to me, hey, do you believe this? I just immediately go to God's character. I think about all his attributes. And I can easily determine that stinky. Get it out of here, right? So pay attention. Read scripture to see who God is. Those principles are why he does what he does, and he doesn't do what he doesn't do. If you know that, you'll be in a very, very good place, okay? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so one thing I do recommend for everybody is I don't know how you um, organize your studies. You have freedom to organize your studies however you please. You know, you're responsible ultimately to the Lord, right, not me. Um, but one thing I've been trying to do lately is I always try to spend a season of the year specifically learning about God's attributes, right? There's nothing wrong with reading the Bible over and over. I'm, I'm never going to tell you not to do that. But remember, the Bible isn't isn't organized in a topical manner. And that's okay. It wasn't meant to be. But sometimes as human beings, it's nice to kind of like sit and grab all these things about God and just specifically look to who the Lord is. Okay, so that's a recommendation I have for you. But, so, I, like I said, why am I bringing this up? I thought we were talking about neighboring. Why are we talking about reading the Bible? Because how you understand the Bible is how you're going to neighbor, <laughs> right? And so, one thing we're just, just for those who just came in, we're talking about this idea that we often go all in or all out. It's like, okay, I'm going to share the gospel with lost people, but that's where it stops. But that's the most loving thing to do. But oftentimes, like in many relationships that God calls us to do, it's not an either or, it's an and, but it's a, mat it's a matter of emphasis or it's a matter of priority. 
Just like we're called to love each other, right? I would say we're called to love each other in some senses as if we were blood brethren, or more, better, I would say. Um, but I'm not, so I'm going to love you guys, but if I have a wife, I have, to, I have a particular love for her that has a greater responsibility for me, right? But you guys wouldn't, like, call me, like, bad or anything because of it. That's the right thing to do, right? So there's these ideas of you're called to love all people, but there are different emphasis here, right? And so I think that also happens with serving your neighbor. Yes, sharing the gospel ought to be fundamentally what you're always trying to do with your neighbor, but don't get it twisted. That's not the only thing you're to do, right? I don't know about you guys, but oftentimes I hear stories of people coming to Christ. Of course, it's always including the gospel, but many times it's because, man, this person was persistently loving me and being gracious with me and helping me with physical things. And then I began to wonder, why are they doing these things for me? And then they told me it was because of Christ. So we can't separate these things. We ought not to. I don't think the Bible as a whole teaches that. And I think we'll go now. So now we're going to talk about, okay, so I love, I'm called to love our neighbors. Sharing the gospel is fundamentally the greatest message of love that you can give because their biggest problem is they're enemies of God and Christ is the only way to be made right with God. Um, but let's see what Jesus himself did. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about sanctification. So the Bible dis, uh, defines sanctification as the Lord's work of making us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Okay? Remember, Jesus is the one who the Father is most pleased in, right? And so we're becoming more like that. But let me caution, not that we're becoming little gods or anything like that. I state that because there are people who believe that. The Eastern Orthodox Church believes that you're becoming God, in a sense, right? We're not talking about that. We're talking about we're becoming more in the image of God that we were always meant to represent. What was shattered in the garden is being restored through Christ, right? But let me also stop there for a second. <laughs> that doesn't mean that somehow you have to become a certain type of perfection before you get to heaven. Salvation is, once you're justified, you have everything that you need to be right with God. You bear on your shoulders the righteousness of Christ. You have a new heart. You have a new spirit. You have the Lord's spirit. The issue is that because we're still on this side of heaven, we still carry the burden of the old man, the old woman, right? But you need to understand, because I know some, for a long time I used to think sanctification is like, okay, God's not going to take me until I get to a certain level. But that's not right. <laughs> when justification means to be declared not guilty, I'm already what I need to be through Christ. What happens when you go to glory is that old man that felt so heavy and so weighty is removed. Okay? So you are, what you, you are exactly what you need to be. You just don't get to experience it in fullness till you're in glory. Do you understand? But also another caution, <laughs> that doesn't mean sit and do nothing, right? Once again, understanding Scripture as a whole. God loved you first. Therefore, our response is how can we not love him with our lives? Primarily, my life is not my own anymore. And so a person who understands that reality, that you have been freed, not to be your own master, but free to now have the master, right? Before, you picked all sorts of different masters, and there were none of them were going to be good for you, right? When we see Christ as the master, we can now live our lives rightly. Now, to the world, it seems like much loss, but we know there is only gain in Christ Jesus, right? So, if that's what sanctification is, 
Let's take a look and see, well, actually, I just kind of want to talk back and forth with you guys, see if you know. Can you guys help me build a list of things that you can recall Jesus doing in his earthly ministry that were not just sharing that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? What things, how did he interact with people? What are things that he did to his neighbor that maybe perhaps we can um, exemplify or, or, or copy? Yes? For me, the, the, the one that stands out the most is when he touched the leper. He healed the leper, and then he did something that was just marvelous. He touched him. That's right, right? that's right. Because he had been touched for whatever year, sure. one day, that man had not been touched. So that's right. Touch was a was a, an unbelievable act of love to touch someone who had I mean, we think about how, much, how important hugs or kisses are. Yeah, for sure. So for him to touch him was just an extraordinary love. That's right. So just uh, for the recording, Cedric brought up particularly the healing of the leper. And so we understand that there's a there's this idea in the in the Jewish people of ritual cleanliness, right? And so leprosy was seen as you don't touch them. You don't even live with them. They live outside the walls. Um, you've, maybe a priest will come every so often to see if they don't have it. If they do, well, keep them out, right? So not only did he heal them, did he have to touch them to heal them? No, he didn't. I think that's a beautiful um, example of this idea. I, I remember uh, listening to this study on it being, being like, look, in the Old Testament practice, if you touch something, that's what made you unholy, right? So they had to constantly get themselves cleansed. But Jesus comes, and it's the opposite. He doesn't get unholy when he touches things. He makes things holy by touching them, right? It's incredible. That just shows you how unique his position is, right? Um, Daniel, do you have something? So, well, real quick, I just want to generalize that. So the idea is that he healed, he healed those that were sick and ill. Did that have to do directly with the saving of their souls? No, it didn't. Continue. All right, so he fed the hungry. Right? He didn't have to do that either, right? What else has he? What else did he do? I, go ahead. I'll get to you. Beautiful. I have that one there. That's exactly right. He loved the lowly, right? What were the people? What was he constantly accused of doing? Why are you eating with tax collectors? Why are you eating with sinners? Why are you eating with prostitutes? Why are you doing this, right? Did you have one, Christian? water to wine. So I kind of put in that one the idea that he engaged in festivities and holidays. He went to people's weddings, <laughs> right? Uh, another one I have here is that he taught people, right? That seems kind of obvious, but he didn't technically have to do that either, <laughs> right? Uh, yes. That's right, like you said. That's right. He submitted to authorities that he was under, right? Remember, they tried to get him with the denarii, like, who's, who, who do we pay this to, Caesar or God? He's like, well, whose face is on it? <laughs> pay what to Caesar, Caesar, but pay to what the Lord is to the Lord, right? You have one, Julian? That's right, acting lower than a house servant and washing those dirty feet, right? Okay, so the point is, and I hope this makes sense now, um, is that Jesus loved we see that love ultimately manifest in his hour on the cross. But don't get it twisted. That's not his only act of love, right? And so that's one thing I want you to understand. If, if you are to be made more and more into the image of God, then your love ought to reflect his love. Namely, first, that you desire to have a love for the Father like he does. And you pray that the Lord would grow and grow, that he is your greatest hope and treasure, right? 
Second, that you would love people like Jesus loved. Another one I would say, I just thought about it, he weeped with Lazarus, right? Well, when Lazarus died, he weeped over it. It wasn't just like, no, I got it. Don't even cry. Don't even worry about it. I'll just bring him up. No, there's, there's an affection there for him, right? So if these are the things that Jesus does, then I hope this kind of sets us with a little bit of a balance if we perhaps were too skewed, right? So like I said, there's two poles. Um, yes? Go ahead. In terms of what do you mean by reconciling? I mean, that's one thing he did for sure. Yeah. So remember, the idea of love, we're first drawing from the root that Christ shows us love, that he became a propitiation for our sins. So justice is met. It's not, sco- it's not scooped under a rug. It's dealt with, right? So the love we're defining here is not so much the love that maybe the world would do, which is like love people and cover that. The way we love is we ignore or we hide sin and things like that, right? The, the cleansing of the temple is a good example, but like I'm saying, I don't think we're having a false understanding of love. Does that make sense? That's a good warning if I'm telling you, uh, we love just by, like, just be nice to people. Just be kind to people. Don't do anything more. But I think from our understanding, but maybe I can clarify for you, the love we're talking about is first a love for the Father that overflows into the love for people. And when you have a love for the Father, that means that's including the understanding of his righteousness, his justice, his holiness. You should never be imbalanced where you're, like, enabling sin or encouraging sin and somehow thinking you're still loving because that's not the case. Does that make sense? Okay, so um, like I said, the two extremes that we tend to go for is we tend to say only spiritual things matter, right? Or we say everything matters to the exact same degree. And so what we see is it's neither of those things. <laughs> it's, it's a mix of these things. All things matter, and we're going to go to verses to point that out, but there are different priorities there, right? So um, the question, another, talking about the idea of like the simplicity of the Christian life, um, one thing that I've tried to do for a while now is like, if I could distill what Christianity is to its most basic elements, what are they? Because I think sometimes it's very easy to get the idea of Christianity convoluted. Look, the, the comp- I mean, when you're studying the character of God, it is of infinite complexity, right? Um, but there is a place that if you understand basically what you were made to do, then even though your life looks different from my life and your seasons look different from my season, if we have the same, if it's biblical, of course, of what the Bible calls us to do at its foundation, then you're never going to stray. So the question that you need to ask yourself is like, well, why am I here ultimately? And we've talked about this before often when I teach. Why doesn't God, when he saves people, he just takes them to heaven, right? See, the reason he doesn't do that is because your purpose is not to be saved alone, right? So then what is the purpose? Why does he allow us to be saved? And some of us are here for many, 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 many years before the Lord takes us. Why would he do that? And we said, well, it can't be because we're being perfected, because we already know our perfection is in Christ, so then why are we here? Is he just being mean? Is he, oh, I don't have enough space? You, you, that's not how that works, right? So that's, I think if we get to the root of why you're here, then you can start 
putting a building on that foundation. I think, like I said, sometimes, especially in our church, we're very theological, and that's right and good, but we can sometimes forget the foundation. And so then you're like running these crusades to do X, Y, or Z, but you've lo- you're way far from what the root is, right? You start dying on hills you shouldn't be dying on, right? You start forgetting what you honestly are here for, right? Good example would be a lot of people, I know parents here, you realize like you got married not really thinking what with wisdom, you had kids without thinking with wisdom, and God is, by God, he sanctified you in that, and you've learned a lot about what it means to be a parent now, and now your crusade becomes, it's all about being a godly father and mother. Now that's right, but is that why you're here ultimately? You've got to ask yourself, why does it matter to be a godly father and mother? There's something deeper than just having kids who know Christ. There's something deeper than having peace in the home. What is that? And I think the answer is that you are here to glorify God, okay? So I want to go to 1 Peter, if you want to turn there, to 1 Peter 2. And we're going to read a verse together, and then I'll have you read a little bit without me, and you'll kind of make a list of the things that you see in there. So 1 Peter 2, and we'll start at verse 9. Okay, so, the, so why we're turning here is because I believe this is one of many, but I think I just like the way it says here, why we are here, okay? What are we, and why are we here? So he says here, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, this is so fantastic. You were an enemy of God. You have now become one of God's people. Not reluctantly, not at a small cost, but it was through Christ. Why are you one of his people? What is the purpose? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. So I want to put something here that's implicit. To proclaim the excellencies of God must first mean that you yourself are enjoying and appreciating the excellencies of God. Does that make sense? Part of the process of worship is you must first find something valuable, and then it is so valuable to you that you can't help but tell others about what's valuable to you. You believe it's worth speaking about so that they would draw and they would see what you make much of. Does that make sense? So I don't think I'm stretching that too far. You must first see the excellencies of God and savor them and enjoy them, and therefore you will now proclaim what you believe is worth living and dying for, right? So that's why you are here. Everything else, like how you steward your money, how, how you are as a father or mother, all those things are simply things you must steward in light of this truth. Does that make sense? The reason you want to be a good father and mother is because the Lord is the greatest father and he has called you to live a certain way and you want to honor him and you want your life to exemplify how he is. That's why you're a good father and mother. Like I said, sometimes we get on these crusades and you stop too short. You do what the Bible says on the surface, but you've lost the heart of it. So if perhaps you are in a situation where you have a crusade, you have something that you're really pressing, 
but you've forgotten that. No, no, wait, all of this, if you're not connecting it, it's all about him, then you've messed, you missed the mark. Go back, retrace your steps, and make sure it, it flows out of, right? Um, so let's, I want you guys to read a little bit, just read the rest of the chapter. There's not a lot there, but he begins to kind of talk about the details of what it means to proclaim the excellencies of God, okay? So I just want you to kind of look for all the verbs and just kind of make a list real quick, and then we'll talk about the list. So remember, God, so you're a people, you're called to proclaim the excellencies, and Peter doesn't leave us with just guesswork. He gives us some very practical ways in which you're called to do that. So go ahead and just read the rest of the chapter and write all the things that you see there that we're called to do specifically in light of that truth. All right, so go keep reading if you haven't finished, but let's just kind of start building that list, right? So hopefully we're doing it in order, right? So we'll let those who are a little bit slower to catch up. But what are some, what are the, what's the first thing that he follows up with in terms of action, things that we now do in light of this truth of being God's people and called to declare his excellencies? Is that the first one? Is that... Ye 10, after verse 10. Abstain from? Ah, yeah. We can generally, I mean, that's a specific type of sin, but we can just generalize that you are to abstain from sin. So does, the, does being a Christian include controlling what you don't do? Most definitely. Okay. What are you to abstain from? Sin, right? Uh, what's the next one? In front of? That's interesting, right? Now, let me ask you. Here we go. We're talking about reading in context. Does that mean I don't have to keep my conduct honorable in front of you guys because we're believers? It's only Gentiles, right? <laughs> That's a, of course not, right? That's not what that means. He's just emphasizing probably what's particularly a temptation to not do. It was probably temp temptation to be like, well, they don't even know about God. Who cares about them? right? Uh, God will handle them, right? There was probably maybe this understanding of like, God's got it, maybe a distorted view of sovereignty. God's got it. We don't need to worry about them. God's going to save them or not. It's not our thing. But we know that it is us declaring the excellencies of God. One way we do that is that we live in light of his excellencies. That means being honorable, not just in front of people you like or love, like your church family, but all people. In this case, we're talking about Gentiles. Now, interesting, remember the context of Peter, he's talking to a people that have been dispersed, so they've been treated like garbage because of Gentiles. Just think about that. So he's, he's essentially saying what Jesus says, to love your enemies, right? They're, it's not just, ah, just people who aren't Christian. These people would feel probably a bitterness and resentment. They're kicked out of their houses and homes because of these Gentiles, right? Okay, so we have abstaining from sin. We have conducting yourself in a particular honorable manner in front of Gentiles, but not excluding everyone, not just Gentiles, right? What's the next one? Submit yourself, right? Ooh, uh, I mean, I'll submit to God, but my government? Nah, I don't know about that. <laughs> but he says it, right? He says it. Why does he say it? What's his reason? He doesn't just say submit to all authorities and just leave it at that. He gives an explanation, doesn't he? What's he say? Doesn't he say something about where all institutions come from ultimately? Come from the Lord, <laughs> right? 
Submit to them because if you might think that honoring God and honoring your government are not one and the same. But he's trying to tell you, wait a second, you do realize that God is king over all, right? You think that these rulers and establishments somehow build themselves apart from God's will? No, 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 that's not how that works. God lifts up kings and he takes kings away, right? So part of you showing the excellencies of Christ that you honestly see him as king and Lord is that you submit to the lower institutions that he has put into place. What's after that one? Freedom, yes. Freedom in Christ. To do what? To do whatever you want? No. Your freedom is used to live according to God. Remember, you were once a slave to sin. You are now alive in Christ, but you are now a slave to Christ. But as a Christian, that is not a bad thing. Listen, you were always meant to be a slave. The problem is not being a slave the problem is, who is the master that you're serving? <laughs> Gee, God is the best master. <laughs> that's where you want to be, right? So that's awesome to see. Uh, next one. It says something about honoring. Honor all men, not just good men, huh? Dang, not just good men. That sucks. <laughs> right? Honor everyone. I think that has a place in there if you want to make a connection to probably because all people bear his image. Remember, it was the shedding of, if man's blood was shed, what was the cost? Another man's blood must be shed, right? Had nothing to do with a man's character or goodness. It had to do with the fact that he bore the image of God, whether he realizes it or not, or whether he does it well or not. And I don't want to just leave it man, man, woman, child. So that's really interesting, right? Because we tend to have no problem honoring people who we believe deserves it. But if you understand that the honor is implicit because they're image bearers of God, and it's primarily meant to honor the Lord, how you treat your brother and sister, that changes things, right? Then the next one, something about love. Love the brethren. So that helps us if you were somehow still thinking, I don't think I'm supposed to conduct honorably in front of Christians. Well, if you're supposed to love your brethren, <laughs> that's not the case, right? Next one, it's about fear. Fear God. There we go. Um, what's the next one? Another honor one. Honor the king, the emperor, right? And then the next part has to do with a very particular, I guess you would call it like occupational relationship, right? In this case, it's slave and master, right? But you can interpose that with a lot of different ones, right? You as a, uh, you and your boss, right? You and your parents, whatever authority, like under and over, that this helps you deal with that, right? But the point is, Yes, love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is the greatest command. But oftentimes we think things based on a list of priorities, like he's number one, okay, now let me go to number two. But a better way to see it is that that command is at the forefront of everything, and everything you do must be filtered through that reality. It's not a list of like, let me do that first, okay, now I did that, let me do everything else. No, it's everything I do must go through that. It must be filtered. And the things that can still, that show my love for him with everything I have, I can do that. If I try to filter it and it doesn't make it through, throw it away. Does that make sense? So this should help you. Just in all, That's what I love about this study. It's not just neighboring that's affected by this understanding. It's everything that you do. We just happen to be focusing on one area. But these concepts will help you steward every aspect of your life. 
if you allow it, okay? Two verses that I want to give you that are kind of like, they, they succinctly kind of remind me of like why, how I'm supposed to live here. And it should help you remind you why you're supposed to be here. So we talked about First Peter 2, the idea that you are a chosen people and your job is to proclaim the excellencies and implicitly in there is to enjoy the excellencies of Christ. Here are two more that you can add to that. So 1 Corinthians 10.31. So it goes on to say, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what that should tell you is that there is nothing too small in this life that you can somehow be excused to not connect it to the Lord. There's nothing that you can do like, okay, well, this is my stuff, and then this is the God stuff, right? Like Wednesdays, oh, it's all about the Lord. Open my Bible, it's all about the Lord, but what I watch or what I eat, nah, that doesn't matter. No, that's why I'm telling you it's not a, it's not a list of priorities. It's, this is the lens in which you look at all the world, Okay? But what does it mean to glorify God? We've talked about this a lot. I'll never stop talking about this because if you understand what it means to glorify God, a lot of the Bible will make a lot more sense if you understand it. We use it all the time. Glorify God to the glory of God. But what does that mean? The answer is to glorify God is to think, is to live, is to act, is to speak in such a way that God is shown exactly to be who he is. Remember, the big problem of the Old Testament people is that they would live in ways which God will send a prophet, and the, 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 the words to them would be, you show your God not to be great when you go whore after other gods. You show your God not to be holy when you do everything that everyone else does, right? So that's why it's all things matter. You live in such a way from the big things to the small things, to the once in a decade things, to the everyday things like eating and drinking. You are to seek to do them in such a way that God is shown to be who he is, namely that he's your greatest hope and treasure. That's why you are to enjoy food, but is there a way to enjoy food that doesn't honor God? Yes. It's called when it becomes your idol. It's gluttony, right? It's a, is it right to love your wife and your kids? Of course it is. But it becomes an idol when you love them at such a way it's at the expense or cutting your love for the Lord, right? And I want to make this very clear. You are primarily to refine this part of life in your life, okay? It's, your job is not to try to primarily do it with someone else. I say this simply because a lot of people might... This is the sinful tendencies of man. Oh, I can't love God right, and they start uh, blaming people because my wife doesn't let me have time. Or my, you better stop doing that right now. <laughs> that's not how that works, okay? So that's first verse. That should help you. Everything you ought to think. This is how it should be. Maybe when you get some time, you, you begin to like list all the, maybe just list all the things you do in just a normal day. And then you go back to that list, and you ask this question with everyone. Have I ever considered God with this thing? Beyond the superficial level of, is this sin or not? Look, that's a right question to ask, but that's baby Christianity. Is this sin or not? It's not just that. Does it glorify God? That's what I want to know. Because there's a lot of things you would not do if that was your greatest concern. If you leave it at, is it sin or not, you're stopping way too short. Okay? So, go through your list. Do I ever even, do I even know what the Bible says about this or this or this? And then do I do it? Do I live, do I interact with this item in light of what the Bible says? So a lot of you will be like, wow, 
I've never thought about God in this. Well, you know what you got to do. The second thing is you might know what God says about it, but you've never infused that knowledge beyond the fact of, is this sin or not? Okay? The second verse I'd go to is Romans 14.23. So this is in the section of there are some believers who they came from Gentile pagan worship, and the, the meat offered to false idols would be used for the sacrifices in the morning, and it will be sold at a discount in the market. And they're like, how, how can you guys eat that meat? We know what it was used for. Some of us were there. What are you doing? And Paul begins to break this down and say, first of all, all things that God make is good, right? And then he, he talks to the reality is, is that some people, if their conscience convicts them, it is sin for them. So don't force them to do something. And those who know better that all meat is good, all, all these things are good to eat, you don't use your freedom to lord over people because ultimately you're not the judge of other men. You're not their master. But you're to use your freedom by giving up your freedom so that you would not be a stumbling, okay? But this verse, I think, has grand principle for all our life here. It says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. We're talking about that meat. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So this is the idea that if you don't see it connecting to the Lord, and it's not honoring to the Lord. This verse is very helpful for you to maybe fight the doubt in your head. I know I used to think this all the time. How is it that everybody is worthy of hell? There's a grandma on my corner of my street. She makes cookies for the kids all the time. She's a faithful wife for 40 years. She's never cursed. She, she helps the community. How is it that she is going to go to hell? And my problem was I thought too little of God's holiness. You see, everything that a, any person does apart from Christ is blasphemy because they are using the gifts that God has given them in all manners except to give honor and reverence to the king. That's why people go to hell. It's not because, oh, they murder or they kill. It's because they use their image-bearing of God for everything but the king. That's high treason. That's high treason. So that's why I tell you, only a Christian can honor the Lord because only a Christian will ever have the desire and the ability to do things for his namesake, okay? So these two verses are helpful to help manage your life as a whole. We're all in different seasons, but if you have these big markers for you, you'll be able to refine your path so it more and more is in line with what Scripture calls you to do. So just as a summary again, nothing can and ought to be divorced from doing it with the intention to show others, and I would say this, I made this statement here, especially yourself. Here's one thing. Part of declaring God's excellencies is primarily uh, uh, putting a, uh, a sign of war against your flesh. I just want to make it clear, your biggest enemy is not another people group. It's, it's not another uh, system of thought. It's not an object. It is the flesh that is still with you. That is your biggest enemy, and that's who you can hate and you can fight with no reserve, okay? That is not an enemy you are to love, okay? Um, but you do these things so that God is shown to be who God actually is. And I want us to kind of talk about some examples here. So I'm going to ask some questions, and then you guys answer how this manifests or should manifest. So if we're saying that our lives should be in such a way that everything we do glorifies God, give me an example 
of in your life when you show him to be king. I'm talking about actions primarily. Yes, words is easy. Well, I say he's king. Yeah, okay, okay. But let's talk about action. How in your life do you live in such a way that if someone was to look, they could say whether they agree with you or not, you know what? God is their king. He's the one who makes the rules in that household. Yes. Submission. Yes. Can you give me a specific example maybe in your life? Okay, good. This is right. This is good. She said to me, as it was an insult, she was like, every time I actually do something, you do it even if you don't like it. Mm-hmm. Like, well, yeah, because I work for Jesus. I literally said, That's amen. That's right. She was like, you know what I'm saying? She's like, I thought you were doing it because I'm your boss. It's like, no, <laughs> I'm doing it because of Christ. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I will, I, I like what he did with these examples. Please use hard circumstances. Don't give me easy ones because that doesn't show me anything. Remember, the Bible says, man, even Gentiles are happy when the coffers are full with money and their foods are filled with belly. That doesn't distinguish you from them. It's when things are hard that a Christian shows themselves to be distinct, right? Okay, so the next one, how do you show God to be your savior? Yes. That's exactly right. Are, are we not tempted to run to almost anything else when things are hard? Uh, one area I've been kind of reflecting in my life is music is a great gift of the Lord. It can move the emotions, but you can definitely make music an idol. And what I mean is like, look, I know we're all about, well, if the lyrics are a certain way, look, that's, it goes even deeper than that. Because you can, you can be sinning horrendously listening to Mozart. How, how do you do that? It's because the music has, has, instead of going from the gift of God that should drive you to the giver, God, you stop at the gift. So haven't you ever had those days, maybe you guys are like this too, where like you get in a certain mood and you know that if you listen to XYZ song, it'll help calm you down. The problem is that's not your God. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's a tool, but we often stop there. Does that make sense? So that's how, just an example you show God to be a savior that when you need saving, you go to him and not anyone or anything else, right? Next one. How do you show him to be your greatest treasure? Remember, I want a bad, I want a hard situation. I don't want the, the easy when everything's peaceful answer. Yes, Chris. Okay, explain. Okay, so in what he said, the idea is like when everything looks financially not good for us, our peace rests in him. Another way I could say is just where you're spending your money, right? There's a lot of things I could buy if it was all about what I wanted, right? But more and more, I hope as Christians, you begin to more and more realize the things you want are actually more importantly what God wants right? Even the times when I kind of give in to things that I want that aren't sin, I realize, like, is it really worth it? So what you spend your money on and oftentimes what you don't spend your money on, where, as before, there was no restriction or difference there. Yes, sir. I just want to make the point that things really change for me when I realize it's not my money. Amen. It's his money. Amen. That's right. Yeah, and that's one thing maybe I want to stress that 
as a slave, all you have is simply things you are called to steward. The only thing that's maybe you could say ultimately yours is your sin, <laughs> right? Nothing else is yours. It's, it's meant to be steward and eventually be returned to him. The question is, will you return it multiplied, thus honoring him, or will it be empty, or will it be burnt up, right? Um, let's see. Um, how do you show that, the, that God is love in your actions? And I'll just kind of go through this. So he gave a great example. Loving is not always primarily emotionally driven. Oftentimes to love someone is to treat them in spite of themselves or maybe in spite of your own emotional being. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. The idea, I think of the verse like love bears all things, right? And then we'll do, um, I'll just name, we're not going to answer these, but I'll just, and these questions aren't the whole list, but how do you show that God is in his essence righteous? How do you show that he is essentially has all wisdom and power? These are, this is why it's so important to know who your God is, because then as you examine or you meditate on who he is, you therefore say, am I living in light of these realities, right? So ultimately, to just kind of summarize here, the reason that you be a good neighbor is because it glorifies God. And it's not exclusively being a neighbor, it's everything that you do. I know I didn't give you specific examples, but I think I equipped you with a more important thing, which if you understand foundationally what you're to examine and test with, then you, in your uniqueness, as a unique image bearer of God with your unique gifts and strengths and talents, you yourself, based on where you're at in life, can come out with practical examples. You see, because if I just give you examples, you might be prone to use the examples as if that's the solid truth. But those are just, at best, outworkings of principles that are much more important for you to know. Okay? So I will end there. And we'll, uh, Father God, we're so thankful that you give us life through your son, that you've shown us what love truly is, Lord. I just ask that you help us, Lord, to see more of who you are, that we would live more for your glory. Help us, Lord, as we examine our lives, that we would put off those things that have no place in our lives because we've not connected it to you or it just straight dishonors you, and that we would put on those things that are right to do, Help us to abstain from evil. Help us to be honorable conduct in front of the Gentile. Let us be able to obey institutions, but not do this through clenched teeth, Lord, or, or, or balled up fists, but that we do it with great love for you because it's all for you. But Lord, apart from you, this would be impossible. Renew us in your word. Wash us with your word. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.